Hey guys, welcome back to the show. Just a reminder, tickets are still available for the conference and day passes are now available for $88. If you can't make it for the whole event, we'd love to see you there, even if it's only for a few days. Live stream passes are still available. We're trying to have an enhanced live stream experience this year with multiple camera angles and hopefully interactive where you guys can ask your own questions to some of the speakers if they do, if they allow questions. Uh, hopefully that works out. But anyway, grab a live stream ticket. If you can't make it in person, all that information is available at journeytotruthcon.com. Tonight, we are joined by Jim Goodall. He is a retired Air Force uh, sergeant? Master sergeant. Master sergeant. Uh, world-renowned expert on the SR-71 Blackbird, spy plane, the F-117 stealth fighter, and Area 51. So we're going to kind of get into the inside scoop of what's going on in the aerospace industry and some of his experiences over the years, including his relationship with Bob Lazar, John Lear, and Ben Rich. He has some incredible stories to tell. I'm excited to get into it. So welcome to the show, Jim. I'm I'm delighted to be here. That's going to be fun. Uh, the end of April is going to be more fun, though, I think. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Right. yeah. Uh, if you guys don't know, Jim, Jim and I will be on a... Uh, we're heading down to Belize to go explore some ancient ruins. We're pretty excited about it. So that's going to be really awesome. But before that, I want to get to know you a little better and ask you about some of your time in the industry. You're obviously an author also, and you've written plenty of books on the subject. But I'm most interested in your relationship with Bob Lazard, John Lear, Ben Rich, because you have some inside information, I guess you could say inside information on these guys and your relationship with them that not many other people have. And I didn't know if you wanted to kind of let us know how you found your way into this whole industry and how you got to meet these people. Well, I guess the uh, the the uh, key to you know how I met, who I met, all starts with John Andrews. He was the plastic kit development director for Testers. And uh, through, a, through a mutual friend, Dave, you know, Dave Menard, uh, he's also an old retired master sergeant. He's, he's long gone now. But uh, John, was, uh, John Andrews was uh, preparing to do a quarter-inch kit of the Blackbird. And he, he called the guys at the Air Force Museum. Uh, he he you know, talked to a dozen people. And every single one of them says, you got you to gotta call Goodall. He has the skinny on what you're looking for. And we immediately became uh, best of friends. And, uh, and because of John Andrews, he said, well, I got to introduce you to a very dear friend of mine. This is like 1973. Oh, that's what, 60 years ago? <laughs> and he said, no, that's 50 years ago, 50. not 60. Yeah, that's new math. <laughs> and he says, I think, I think, I think you'll, en I think you'll enjoy him. Uh, his, uh, his dad brought Learjet to the world. It's John Lear. So I became a, a confidant of John for, you know, from 1973 on until his death last year. And I figured that you know, died March 30th of, of uh, 2022. It's been almost a year. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, he was a character. There's, there's, that's the only way to describe John Lear. There was, he was a one of a kind. He was, he probably had more certificates for flying various aircraft and helicopters than probably anybody else. I think he was type rated in over 50 aircraft types, uh, commercial, private, and some military. 
And he just, he, he was born to fly. On his mm -hmm. 16th birthday, he flew his dad dad's Learjet, uh, Lear 23, with a FAI inspector on board. And he flew solo around the world on his 16th birthday. And he still holds those records today, uh, wow. which is pretty phenomenal. He was, you know, he flew for Air America subsidiary called Continental Air Service. He, you know, he flew the, uh, it's a Swedish type of uh, short takeoff and landing aircraft, high wing, turboprop. And he would land on six to 700 foot runways that were cut into the top of a mountain. So if you undercut, you crashed into the mountain. If you overshot the runway or didn't stop in time, you go, you know, you go over the ends and, you know, down uh, four, four canopies of, of, of Cambodian or uh, jungle. Uh, and he said he's been shot at uh, while he's done that. And a lot, a lot of times, depending on where he was going, he would they would always fly with the the uh, right hand side door removed. And he sometimes he would come down just touching his wheels, and he would just shove the stuff out without stopping because he's being shot at. And then he, uh, the pilots were not allowed to fly with weapons. All of them did. And if John was shot at, he'd take his. Uh, uh, aircraft and he'd fly around where the shots were coming to it he had his uh beautiful uh 1911 45 and he'd just start bah, 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 just shooting at him <laughs> throwing another you know magazine and just shoot some more so he was a, he was a real buccaneer he was there's there's only one person like john lear on the planet and uh he's he came and went right and he but shared because of, because of my friendship with uh john lear I met Bob Lazar, and that yeah, that's a fun story. And it all you know, focuses around my my love of spooky airplanes. I'm a UFO guy too, but I really my my true focus and calling is, you know, snooping on our government, on you know, in and around Area 51, trying to find out what they're flying today or what they're flying back back in the day. And in uh, November of 1988, uh, the Air Force announced the existence of their stealth fighter, the F-117. And it, it, they didn't; they weren't saying where it was flying out of. They had <clears throat> only one photo of it. It was shot from a tanker. It was backlit. They used a telephoto lens. So the you know, image was all compressed. So early January, I call up John Lear and said, hey, I'm, I'm going to come, come into Vegas uh, let's go see if we can find an F-117. So I said, sure. So I flew in. This is like say, it's the first week of uh, 1989. And we're uh, we're heading up to Tonopah. And you, when you leave Las Vegas, you go up uh, US-95. And about the halfway point between the two is a place called Scotty's Junction. What's famous about Scotty's Junction, it was a house of ill repute, also known as a whorehouse. That was taken over by the federal government because they hadn't paid their taxes and they ran it out of business. I don't know how you can run a, a house of ill repute out of business, but the government managed to do that. But about 15 miles north of that of Scotty's Junction, an F-117 about 1,500 feet uh, above the ground crossed the runway, I mean, crossed the roadway at about a 45 degree angle and about crashed the car. So we got up to Tonopah, we grabbed a quick bite, we, and then we hit headed uh, east on uh, US-6. You go down out about uh, 14, 15 miles from Tonopah, and there's nothing out there. I mean, it's just barren. There's a big sign with a B-43 nuke on top. It says Tonopah Test Range. 
turn down that road. It's 18 miles to the main gate of TTR. And I have, you know, I'm a retired military, so I have, a, a, you know, I have access to most bases, but TTR isn't one of them, and either is Area 51. But I, uh, uh, you know, we, we headed down the road. We got, we got to the uh, main gate, and we decided we're going to go along the fence line. So we drive about two miles west along the fence line, and we're looking down on the entire complex. You can do that today, by the way. Anybody who wants to, you know, who has uh, a vehicle that they don't care if they get a little bit dusty or dirty. I won't take my car because it only has about this much ground clearance. Sure. Uh, um, I'm going to stop you just for a second before you sure. go on with the story. And I'm, I don't mean to be rude and interrupt, but uh, you're, so you're with John Lear. You guys are going to explore this F-117. At this point, had he shared any information with you on what he believed the government had access to or the technologies that the government was working with at that time? Uh, yeah, he shared everything with me over the years. Uh, he was pretty outrageous in a lot of areas. Uh, you know, some, you know, some, sometimes I, I think he's, you know, he was overzealous with, uh, with his ideas, his information, but he did share most everything with me. And he was talking about the underground facilities. <clears throat> I know, I think for a fact that, uh, I had a chance to interview the former, uh, facility manager at Area 51, or a retired Blackbird pilot. And I asked him, are any underground facilities at Area 51? He said, no, because if there were, I'd have been responsible for them. Um, so he said, not to my knowledge. He said, we have the ability on the other side of the mountain, which is the Papoose Range. It's, that's the backdrop to Area 51. They have the, the uh, boring machines there that uh, can go through solid granite at a foot an hour and cut a 36 foot diameter hole. And wow. they used that when they were when they were digging down uh when when we still did underground nuclear uh, testing. They go down 1500 feet, 3000 feet depending on the yield. They put the bomb down there, they put all sorts of test equipment and they run all the cables up, fill the thing up with I don't know if they use concrete or whatever, but they would fill that hole up. And then they would detonate, and you can go on YouTube and see them. Where you see the ground come up, and then it just goes down into a big dimple. Uh, and uh, right, so I mean, so you don't believe that the Area Fifty One has underground levels? I mean, I pretty that's pretty much. I thought that was common knowledge across the board at this point. According according to the facility manager, no. I mean, but, yeah. But there's, you know, there's things out there he may, you know, he not have may not have been cleared to see, right. and it may be someone else's responsibility. You know, S four uh, is, you know, cut into the side of the mountain. It's camouflaged. You can't see it from the ground. You can't see it from the air, uh, via satellite imaging or whatever. Um, and when you dig, when you dig a tunnel, when you dig a, an underground facility, you have a debris field somewhere. You have to put that dirt somewhere. And there has to be a road in and out. And those, and again, the Air Force and the United States military has gotten really good at camouflage. So, you know, you know the entrances and the roadways going into S4 you know, maybe you know, maybe really uh, camouflage where we can't see them. Right, right. Of course. Yeah. Yes. Um, so then you and Bob, or you and Bob, you and John Lear were uh, on the fence line looking down. And what did you guys witness? Well, I look to the north, and about 15, 18 miles north of us, I see a, a black fuzzy ball with a light on the bottom, and then a little 
bluish white fuzzy ball with a light on the bottom. I just I assume that was the F one seventeen and a photo chase, which is typically uh, a T thirty eight Talon. So this is before digital photography. And normally I shot Kodachrome, and that would take seven to ten days to get that processed and back to me. So I'm shooting color print film. I'm shooting color color. I have I have uh, a Nikon with Nikon lenses. You know they're you know they they don't get much better than that. And I'm watching it, and I as as the F one seventeen is filling up my uh, viewfinder, my body is starting to vibrate. I was like a, a 10 or 11 year old boy seeing a naked woman for the first time. I mean, literally I was, I, you know, I was trying to keep myself from, from vibrating, but it was just vibrating. And the 117 flew off and landed and it was just, it was incredible. And I said, John, let's get out of here. We got to get back to Las Vegas in time so I can go to a photo mat. Those of us, those of us that have white hair or gray hair, we know what photo mats are. Uh, they were a little uh, kiosk in the middle of a parking lot, usually in the shopping center. Uh, they were the same color as Kodak. They were yellow and, and uh, you know, that yellowish orange and red. And you go in and drop off your film. You, you don't even have to get out of the car. You just drive up. It's like a barista now. That I think the coffee baristas have taken over those little shacks. Mm -hmm. And I knew it was going to be, you know, a couple of days before I got the print film back. So I was kind of frustrated. So we we head on out. We stopped a little alien in Rachel for a quick bite. And then we head to, you know, back to Vegas. We know we're getting there after nine o'clock when the photo mats are, are closed. And we finally get to Lear's house. And he said, oh, I got a, I have a new friend. He just moved up here from Albuquerque. He's interviewing for a job out in the desert. He hasn't gotten it yet, but he's gone. He's, he has had quite a few interviews. I think you'll like him. So about 15 minutes after we arrived in Vegas, uh, knock on the door. Lear goes and answers the door. A young man comes in, very pleasant, nice-looking guy, and introduces himself as Bob Lazar. Wow. And uh, uh, we, we're just talking airplanes and stuff like that. And I said, hey, I got I got some film that I that I'm frustrated. I got I can't wait till, till tomorrow so I can get the film processed. He said, what kind of film? I said, Code of Color 100. He said, well, I have a processing unit at home. Let's go over to the west side of town where I live, and I'll process the film for you, and we'll print, print some up, see if, there, see if there's anything worthwhile. So I said, great. So we told John we'd be back probably in about an hour. We jumped in uh, Lazar's car, and we're about a block from Lear's house. And Lazar looks at me, you know, she says, I feel sorry for that dumb son of a bitch Lear. I said, what do you mean? He said, he's from, he's from a world-famous aviation family. He said, my God, his dad brought Learjet to the world. And this guy believes in UFOs? You got to be kidding. He says, I'm a, I'm a nuclear physicist. If I can't prove it mathematically or put my hands on it, it doesn't exist. He said, you, can, you couldn't put a gun to my head to convince me that UFOs are real. Well, that was Bob Lazar's statement to me. How ironic. Before he was hired on at S4. His story yeah. has never changed. Uh, in 1989, 1990, he had a, I think it was a, a deck, a mini computer in his house because PCs at the time were not very good, not very fast, and had you know limited, limited capabilities. And he had a NEMA, a NEMA enclosure 
and it was filled with processors. I mean, it was, you know, 19 inch wide, you know, it was a, a 24 inch deep and six foot tall. That was his computer back wow. in 1989, 1990. And, uh, and then shortly thereafter, I get up a year later, George Knapp uh, has a guy named Jared silhouetted, altered the votes, the voice talking about doing reverse engineering on alien spacecraft. And that was my introduction to Bob Lazar. And, well, you know, he, he since changed his story. <laughs> he believes in UFOs now. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, and I, you know, I've, I've stayed, I've stayed true to my feelings about Bob there's all sorts of speculation. Oh, he's a plant this and this and that. And he became a, uh, uh, he became a, he didn't, ex he doesn't exist anywhere on federal records prior to 1989. That's when they made him a non-person. Yeah. And fast forward to uh, Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And I, it's 1990. I'm, I'm there. Uh, I was in the, I had, Five years active duty, a 10-year break, and then I had 21 years with the Minnesota Air Guard as a traditional weekender. But my company had uh, been shut down by the French, and I uh, was going through divorce. So I volunteered to go to, you know, to go to Desert Shield and Desert Storm. I even volunteered to go to uh, Saudi Arabia for a year. But I was at the, I was at the Pentagon, I'm at Guard Bureau, and I have, but I have Bob Lazar's W-2 in my back pocket. And uh, on this one particular day, I had absolutely nothing to do. Uh, there was a stand down or something you know, going on in uh, Saudi Arabia. So I decided I was going to see if I can find the uh, location from the U.S. Navy that paid Bob Lazar and the name, you know, the name on the W-2. So I'm looking, I'm looking through the Pentagon directory, and I cannot find the specific Department of Navy that paid Bob. It's not listed anywhere in the uh, you know, in the uh, Pentagon directory. So I decided. I think it was. I think it was uh, 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 NCIS. I think it was Naval Investigative Services, or the almost like the Navy JAG office. Found that office, and I said, "Well, I'll just see if they can tell me." So I go in there. At this at this particular point, I'm a I'm still a tech sergeant. I'm in my uh, you know, my uh, blues. Not the not the full dress uniform, but my light blue shirt, you know, dark blue pants. I go in, the doors open. I, you know, I, I walk I walk into this office. There's a young lieutenant JG behind the you know, behind the desk, and I said, "Sir, can you tell me where this Department of the Navy is?" And I handed him Lazar's W two. He looks at it and he says, "Sergeant, excuse me for a second. He gets up. He goes into the two stars office. He's in there. 20, 30 seconds, comes out, said, the admiral will see you now. Now, those of you who have been in the military, especially those of you maybe even in the Navy, no two-star admiral on, on just a uh, hunch or whatever is going to talk to a puke Air Force slash Air Guard enlisted person. So I go in there. Uh, I gave him, a, gave him a real sharp salute. Instead of saying at ease, he said parade rest. So I can tell he was irritated at me right then. And I'm standing there and he's holding Lazar's W-2. He said, Sergeant, I don't know where you got this, 
But if I see your face cross the threshold of my office ever again, you'll be the most sorry son of an NCO in the United States military. Do you understand me, Sergeant? I said, yes, sir. And with that, he put Lazar's W-2 into the shredder. Wow. Said, you're, dis you're dismissed. Now, if Bob had been a plant, if Bob had been a phony, I would not have had this reaction from the two-star. Right. He was he was pissed because I had something, a name of a, a Navy organization that the name is classified, apparently, mm -hmm. and that he was incredibly uh I mean, he was he was angry at me. I mean, it wasn't, well, you shouldn't have this or whatever. What are you doing in my office? No, he was, I mean, his eyes were big. His, I mean, you could tell by his tone of voice and his facial mm -hmm. expression, this two-star was pissed at me yeah right and uh you know when i got when i got back to the section i just scratched my head and i said well the, probably the only reason why i got the reaction that i did is that bob lazar is real now, mm -hmm. he's real to me he always has uh, and, it, and it goes on and on you know the other thing that another piece of the puzzle that people ignore well he's a plant he's never done this he's never done that George Knapp, who I've known as long as I've known John Lear, so that's, you know, over 50 years, uh, you know, George Knapp went to Albuquerque, where Lazar said he had worked. He worked at, uh, I think it was Sandia. And he went to the Sandia uh, library. It's there. There's two, two parts of it. There's the classified side and then the public side. And he's in there and he pulls out the uh, telephone directory directory for Sandia Labs for the time that Bob said he was there and opened up. And there's Robert Lazar with the phone number that Bob said he had and the room number and the two guys in the same lab. It, you know, uh, George looked up those names and everything was consistent. Plus, Bob said that I, I was I made the front page of the lifestyle section of the Sandian newspaper. And there's a picture of Bob standing in front of his jet car. And it says, Sandia professor relaxes on weekends going 300 miles an hour and a quarter mile. Hmm. And I've seen, I've seen the jet car. I've seen, I mean, it's uh, right. So, so every, everything, everything that I, you know, you know, wasn't even looking for emphasized the fact that, Bob is real. Bob is, you know, Bob is not a plant. Bob is who he says he is. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, it would be, it would make sense yeah. that there would be a force in place trying to discredit him. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, real, it, and real. that's, and that, you know, that's a, a very big, a, a big part of the disinformation campaign is if someone's telling the truth, mm -hmm. And the government doesn't want that information out. Well, let's destroy this person any way we can, as far as his uh, credibility, reputation. Yeah. Right. Well, one of the right. points a lot of the skeptics make that he's that he's lying or he's a fake is that they scrubbed all his records from the school he went to and everything. So they're like, oh, he never went to that school. He's lying. Like, no, they scrubbed his information because he's That's, yeah because he's real. That's why they did yeah. that. Not because he's lying. And then two, uh, he, I remember him saying the, the whole reason he even went public is because he was scared for his life because they were already starting to kind of come after him. And he's like, well, I got to come out 
fully publicly now. Otherwise, they can kill me, and this information dies with me. And they had uh, you know. they had called them, uh, and they wanted you know, you know the security people need wanted to talk to them, mm-hmm. but they said we'll meet you out at Indian Springs, which is now Cheek Creech Air Force Base. It's about thirty miles outside of Las Vegas on US ninety five. And Bob said he went out there for the interview, and he's sitting in the car with him. They pulled a gu- they pulled guns on him. Mm-hmm. And threatened, you know, threatened to shoot him. And I think yeah. that's when Bob said, "Look, yeah, you know, this life is too short. Uh, I'm not going to, uh, I, you know, I'm not going to uh, allow this to happen." Right, right. So and that's when he decided to go. That's when he decided to go public. And because he knew Lear, you know, he, you know, he inquired, "What, what, who would you, you know, recommend that I go to as far as major media?" And it was George Knapp. Because George and John had been, you know, friends for forever and ever. Mm-hmm. You know, both uh, both John and his wife Mary Lee were, you know, were real real big in in Las Vegas uh, movies and TV stuff. Um, and John, you know, John has been just a celebrity for because he's John Lear, right? And right. he put his yeah he's he put his money money where his mouth is. He was uh, when he was the the chief pilot for American Trans Air. This is John Lear. Uh, some uh, journalist down in down in Houston called him up or cornered him one of the two, and he said, "I don't like the fact that you're you know you're a a person you know, in a position of, of authority. You're the senior captain and the, you know the the lead ca- the lead pilot for American Trans Air, and you believe in UFOs. And if you can, if you keep this up, I'm gonna I'm gonna start a campaign to destroy you. This is this is a journalist. This is one of our." You know, those that want to, you know, uh, yeah. journeyed into the truth and <laughs> right. they didn't want the truth. No. So uh, John met with the president of uh, American Trans Air. This is in Indianapolis. And the president said, John, all you have to just tell me, he says, you won't do this anymore. We'll just leave it at that. John said, I can't I can't do that. So he 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 turned his back on a probably a $400,000 a year job because uh, it went against his best interest. I mean, his interest was, you know, to make sure the public knew, yeah. know about uh, UFOs, alien encounters and and whatever. When he got home, you know, he told Mary Lee that, Hey, I'm, uh, I just uh, lost my job at ATA. And he, he went, so he had to go somewhere else. When he came back, she had, emptied out his office. Now, those of who never seen John Litter's study or his office, this is about a 20 by 20 foot room. You couldn't put any more photos on the on the walls or any more books on the bookshelf. And everything had to do with uh, UFOs with his time in you know Southeast Asia and aviation. And I'm proud to say that uh, a good the largest part of of the wall space was taken up by photos that I'd given John. So yeah, when he came cool. home and, and all his, his filing cabinets are gone, everything's gone. And uh, Mary Lee said, uh, he said, I'm, I've changed the numbers uh, at, for the house. Uh, all, the, all the phone numbers are, are changed and you're not allowed to give them out to anybody unless I approve. Cause he was getting calls from all sorts of crackpots all over the planet. 
And and Mayor Lee liked me, so my name was on the list of approved people that John could give his phone number to. But he's yeah, you know, he he put his money where his mouth is, and he you know, he really felt that he had you know it was his job to make sure that uh, you know this information is brought forward. And he did that until the day he died, too. I mean, absolutely, absolutely. Now he said a lot of outrageous things, but. Uh, considering with some of the stuff that's going on around the world and underground facilities and whatever, uh, maybe he wasn't so outrageous after all. Mm-hmm. Right? But now, I, uh, yeah, I absolutely, I miss not talking to John. Right. And you, yeah, but he's also a prankster. You don't, you don't know if he's pulling your leg or whatever. And I mean, a couple of times he was, uh, I had, been at Rachel, and I had borrowed his four-wheel drive pickup, and I was sleeping in it uh, near the fence line of Area 51, and a pavehawk came through and uh, almost landed on top of the car, and the uh, the turbulence ripped off a couple of his antennas, which I wasn't aware of. So he came, he came and says, I mean, he was pissed. He's jumping up and down. He's almost foaming at the mouth that I screwed up his truck and whatever. And I'm feeling really, really bad. And all of a sudden, I see this twinkle in his eye. I said, "Larry, you son of a bitch!" He said, "You're pulling, you're pulling, the, you're pulling one on me." And he starts laughing. He had a great <laughs> laugh, and that's that funny. was John Lear. And that's the that's the John Lear that I knew. Right. And I and I covered I covered three or four. He had some very specific groups that really didn't uh, mingle into into any other groups. The exception was me. I was both in the aviation side, my love of the desert, you know, spooky airplanes, UFOs, and whatever. And so I, you know, I, I covered a lot of his area of interest. And I think it's why we, uh, our, our friendship blossomed like it did. Yeah, that's and, great. And one of his very, very dear friends was John Andrews from Testers. And they go, they went back, you know, to the 60s. And when uh, John Andrews died, he had asked me, he said, uh, when I die, could you take my ashes and make sure they're dumped in, you know, over Area 51? And merely at all, you know, he'd also taught, you know, told John Lear the same thing. And he merely had cleared it with the uh, uh, cremator that I, wa- I wanted in, in equally in two, com- you know, in two containers. So at his yeah, at his memorial service in San Diego, uh, Marilee gave me his John's ashes. We fl- we drove back up. This was on a Wednesday. We drove back up to uh, Las Vegas from San Diego, and then Lear says, "Well, I rented a I rented a Jetstar helicopter there at McCarran, and we're gonna we're gonna fly to the uh, the north end of Area 51, and we're gonna make sure John's ashes are spread all over Area 51." So the next day, we're out at McCarran. Uh, John was certified to fly the Jetstar, but he wanted to have, uh, uh, you know, an instructor pilot fly. You know, just remo- it removes it in li- you know the liability you know claims if something had gone wrong. And as we're heading towards, uh, we took we took off McCarran. We're sort of going up fifteen in the helicopter, and uh, just past Nellis, heading north. And before you get to Apex, there's a real sharp ridge line, and the wind is howling. And as we go over that ridge line, we were bouncing all over the place. We didn't go inverted, but we were sideways a couple of times. 
and I'm I'm kind of concerned. And I look at Lear and I look at the pilot, and they're just sitting there like there's nothing to be concerned mm-hmm. about. I said, Well, if they're not concerned, then I'm not. And we're about uh halfway there, or maybe two-thirds of the way there. And John says, I gotta go to the bathroom. And the pilot says, I gotta pee too. So we land out in the middle of the desert. There's three guys out there watering the cactus. And then we took off. And as soon as we got over Hancock Summit, and that's the summit you go down in Tippecoo Valley, and that's where you can see the back road to Area 51. As soon as we came over that, you know, over that ridge line, uh, they launched a uh, you know, a beach, was it? 1900. It's the uh, the air guard used them for VIP transport and just you know a hack airplane. But this aircraft took off from it from Area 51 and uh, started following us. And we head up uh, 375. And then we when we got to just uh, before we got to Rachel, there's a road going out to the bombing range. They call it 10 mile road. So we head down that way. And then you could you could see where the fence line is in Area 51. You can see uh, the, the tracks where they patrol it all the time. So we're sitting up there. We're about 1,500 feet above, uh, no, about 3,000 feet above ground level. The wind is howling. We're sitting there. We're being buffeted. And John gets on the uh, radio, and he knows the frequency that they monitor at Area 51. And he says, Dreamland, Dreamland. This is John Lear and uh, Jim Goodall announcing that John Andrews is on final approach to run, runway 14 left. With that, I opened up the slider, put my hand out, dumped his ashes. They went down. As soon as they hit the 30-mile-an-hour north wind, it just went straight into Area 51. Mm. So John's ashes are scattered all over the place. That's a and, great story. And we and we had a military escort with the uh, uh, the beach flying around us, and then we you know, then we headed back and the you know the bit the beach back into Area Fifty One. So it was uh, now you know, the, the reason the reason I'm where I'm at today is because of John Andrews, and that was just a fitting tribute to my friendship with him and right. my friendship with Lear. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Um, now, did you? From my understanding, you had a relationship with Ben Rich as well, the CEO, yeah. former CEO of Lockheed Skunk Works. Um, what was that relationship? And uh, because he, I'm sure you're familiar with his quote, we already have the means to travel among the stars, but these technologies are locked up in black projects and it would take an act of God to ever get them out to benefit humanity. Anything you can imagine, we already know how to do it. Um did he share anything that pertained to that with you while you were friends with him? Yeah, we we talked once a quarter for 25 years. I don't know how I got onto his list of favorite people, but if I didn't call him, he would call me. And we would just chat. There's, there were times when I called him, he per, put me on speakerphone. His secretary, June, recommended would recognize my voice. Uh, you, know, you know, Mr. Rich's office. You know, Hi there. Oh, Mr. Goodall. So just a second, I'll connect you with Ben or connect you with Mr. Rich. He put me on speakerphone. I can tell there's a half a dozen people in his office and we're just sitting there shooting the breeze. And it just, it, it just went on that way for, you know, for up until he died. And in August of, I mean, our, our friendship was, was uh, so cemented so well that in August of 89, Ben called me at home and he said, Jim, I says, I have it from the horse's mouth. He says, the Blackbirds are not going to make it through Congress. And if anybody can scrounge one, it's you. 
says, okay. So I, I went to my boss, Major General Al Schwab, and I said, General Schwab, I think I, uh, I want to get a Blackbird for our museum. He just laughed at me. I said, sir, rather than saying no, why didn't you give me the opportunity to fail? And he said, all right, Smarty, how are you going to get it here? Because you know, the ones that are available for mu museums, you know, they don't fly. Uh, so I said, I already have that covered. <laughs> he says, what do you mean? So I called the adjutant general of the state of New York, you know, General Weaver, and I called his office, and the secretary answered the phone, uh, General Weaver's office. I said, this is Sergeant Goodall with the 133rd. That's the 133rd airlift wing in Minneapolis. He says, is uh, General Weaver available? Just a minute, Sergeant, I'll put you through. So General Weaver gets on the phone, and we're chatting away. And I said, sir, I have a proposition for the New York Air Guard. He said, what's that, Sergeant? I said, how would the New York Air Guard like to move the world's fastest airplane in a couple of your C-5s? And he said, I mean, he's quiet for about 10 seconds, 10 or 15 seconds. He said, you mean the Blackbird? I said, yes, sir. He said, when you're ready, you call, we'll haul. Hmm. So I told General, I told General Schwab, I, you know, I have that covered. Um, and the and it and they did when we when we got the letter from uh, the Air Force Museum. The other thing I managed to do, which has only happened never happened before or since, is I got the entire Minnesota congressional delegation, five Democrats, five Republicans, all to agree to sign the letter that the Minnesota Air Guard Museum should get the Blackbird or a Blackbird. Because of uh, the involvement of Honeywell, Honeywell had all the electronics, you know, the autopilot, the stabilization augmentation system, uh, inlet control system. That was all from Honeywell. Uh, 3M uh, provided a lot of the uh, uh, flexible circuits and uh, adhesive views on the Blackbird. Uh, uh, Rosemont uh, built and, and uh, you know, manufactured the static pedal uh, system. And five of the original A-12 pilots learned how to fly or flew with their respective air guard uh, locations. Uh, so you got the you got the Blackbird to the museum though. That's great, right? And the thing about it, uh, we got it. We got the eighth uh, production A-12. It's a single place. They fly higher and a little bit faster than the SR. And uh, my claim to fame when we recovered, we, we recovered them in, in uh, October of 91. Uh, I took a, a C-130 with 18,000 pounds of equipment and 12 other guys, and we flew to Palmdale. And in two and a half days, we took the outer uh, wings and engine nacelles off of the A-12 Blackbird, number 128. And then we, we left and came back, uh, was it? 10 days later, and we had the, the C-5 there ready to load. We had one and a half, one and a half inches of clearance on the floor, the floorboard uh, with the guardrail, I mean, the floor rails. We could have torqued the landing gear in some if we had a problem, but it fit. So on the uh, 27th of October, 1991, we load this, the uh, uh, A-12 Blackbird into a New York Air Guard C-5, they don't have fuel available at Palmdale, so we had to go up to Travis. We spent the night there. Uh, next morning, we took off. We're heading to Minneapolis, and we're about 45 minutes out. And the chief, uh, it was an E-9, it was going to go down and check the load. 
I said, can I go with you? And said, normally the answer would be no, but since this is your this is your project from beginning to end, of course, come down. So I went down, uh, I climbed up in the landing gear, walked along the chines, opened up the canopy that I had blocked open with a wheel chuck. And I had a five gallon bucket in there with a cushion. The seat was all the way down. I went in there and closed the canopy. I was in there for about 45 minutes, just hammering the air in a blackbird. Hmm. And then finally he wrapped in the bottom, say, hey, we got to go back up. So I went back up. And then uh, about 40 minutes before we're supposed to land, uh, Chief comes back to me. He said, the boss said, you can be in the cockpit when we land. So I'm in the front part of the C-5. The back part is troop carrier. They have 75 seats behind the wing box. I'm in the, the front section. He said, no, downstairs. So I called Ben Rich uh, the next day. And I said, Ben, I said, I think I've done something with the Blackbird that absolutely no one else on the planet can, can say they've done and probably will never, I'm the only person who will ever be able to do that because rules change. But I'm the only person in the world to have been in the Blackbird cockpit, cockpit of a Blackbird at 33,000 feet at Mach 0.72 inside another airplane. <laughs> that's that was, amazing that was that was the boss that just came in babe <laughs> yeah, okay right. hi that's amazing how's it going yeah um good <laughs> so you mentioned off air that you uh you were trying to interview ben rich but that never happened so can you explain what happened with that well he had to wait till he retired and uh he was doing a lot of things he's and i he said i just i need my get my book finished with leo janos and it was my time at the Skunk Works uh, by, by Ben Rich and actually done by Leo Janus. And by the time that happened, he was diagnosed with terminal cancer. He had esophageal cancer. And it just we just ran out of time. Uh, Michael Schratt, who's also a you know, longtime friend of mine, has the original letter, that, that uh, copy that Ben wrote to me saying, that, yeah, I, I will be a no holes barred uh, interview, but I had to wait for the book to be finished. And he had the nerve to die on me before. But right. the, last, the last thing, my, you know, my last conversation with, with Ben Rich, he was at USC Medical Center. Uh, it was about 10 days before he died. And I call him up and uh, he said, uh, and we we're talking about John Andrews and John John Lear and a bunch of other people. And finally, uh, near the end of, it was about a, almost an hour long conversation. I can tell you, he was, he was weak. He said, Jim, we have things out in the desert. And he wasn't referring to Area 51. He said, we have things out in the desert that's 50 years beyond what you can comprehend. Not what you think you can make in 50 years, but what you can comprehend. And I can comprehend a hell of a lot. They said, if you see movies like Star Trek or Star Wars, we've been there, done that, or decided it wasn't worth the effort. I said, Ben, you want to expand upon that? He said, no. And then he had the nerve to die on me 10 days later. So, wow. But his, state, his statement at UCL, uh, UCLA, uh, basically saying, we have the ability to take ET home, but our government won't allow that information to be made public. And that's infuriating. And Yep. And that's why I've always been a pain in the ass to our government, because I snoop. I mean, when when General Roman, who was my wing commander, he was at a general conference uh, 
in the in the late 80s. And it was all the generals from the Air Guard, the Air Force Reserve, and active duty. And he was there. It was about a 10-day uh, gathering. And the chairman of the Joint Chiefs was uh, General John Vesey. He's from Minnesota. He you know, grew up on Lake uh, Mille Lacs in, in the central part of the state. And uh, G uh, General Broman was uh, uh, chatting with General Vesey. This is mid midway through the uh, conference. And he said, said we get, we've given, he says, we get a big kick out of your Sergeant Goodall. You know, some of the, uh, all of us senior officers really think what he does makes the Air Force look good. Uh, and referring to my books and, and whatever. I said, but there's a few of the younger, you know, younger officers, we'd like to have them whacked. But we've given we've given your Sergeant Goodall a nickname. We refer to him as Agent Orange. And that's been my nickname given to me by the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General John Vesey. And it just cracks me up. I mean, I'm I mean, when I when I was on the fence line at Tonopah Test Range with uh, John Lair, this is 96. So we're fast forwarding to 96. Uh, Tonopah Test Range is now in caretaker status, allegedly. And we're out there. It's at night. It's about 11 o'clock at night. Lear and I are out there in our lawn chairs. You don't want to sit on the ground because there's scorpions and bugs and whatever. And we have night vision goggles on. And we look and we see three armored personnel carriers coming, one from the west, one from the east, one coming up from the south. <clears throat> and I stand out and yell real loud, hey, we're good guys, we're taxpayers. And all of a sudden, we have floodlights on us. John has three little red dots on his chest. I have three little red dots on my chest. And we see a vehicle had come down the public land side, or BLM, but Bureau of Land Management, not the other BLM. Um, <laughs> Comes around uh, John's pickup truck. He has his hand on his uh, Beretta, his nine millimeter. He said, you're in a restricted area. I'm ordering you to leave. And I said, sir, I don't know who you are, but we're in public lands and I don't need your permission to be here. He says, I said, you're in a restricted area and I'm ordering you to leave right now. And I pulled out an aeronautical map issued by the federal government that gives a longitude and latitude to the second of restricted areas. Mm -hmm. And I said, according to this map, I'm no. on public lands. And if right. you look at the base of that fence post that my friend has his feet up on the barbed wire, you'll you'll find a USGS medallion. We're on public lands, and I can be here for 15 consecutive days without your permission, or anybody's permission for that matter. I want to see some ID. And I said, who are you? So I'm Captain So-and-so with ASI, and it stood for Advanced Security, Inc., Contract Security. <clears throat> I said, you're a rent-a-cop. You don't have any jurisdiction on this side of the fence. And you can just see his jaws just tighten up. He <laughs> says, I told you, I want to see some ID. He says, I've been, I've been deputized by, the, you know, by Lincoln, Esmeralda, and Nye County to uphold the laws of the federal government in the state of Nevada. I said, good for you. <laughs> so I'll tell you what. i tell you what. You show me yours, I'll show you mine. So he hands me his ASI badge. I said, sir, that's not a valid form of ID. I need something issued by the state or federal government. And, and he's getting more and more pissed. So he hands me his Nevada driver's license. I don't have uh, my reading glasses on. So, okay, fine. So I'm living in Minnesota at the time. Larry is, you know, living on Hollywood Boulevard in Las Vegas. And he pulls out his uh, driver's license. And I pull out mine and hand it to the guy. He hands it to a guy on the south side of the fence. 
walks over to uh, the, the one of the APCs, armored, pers armored personnel carriers, had to be the supervisor. Hands him the, the, a, uh, the driver's license. The guy turns the lights on inside the, the uh, APC, you know, ACP. And he said, I can hear him say, oh, shit, it's good all in Lear. The lights went off, the red dots went away, and they just dispersed. But we knew that since we were found and they knew us there, they weren't going to do anything. And that's it's a, and it's uh, it's kind of heartwarming that they knew who we were. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So I that's what that. I do. That's what I do for fun. And I I've been to the fence line at TTR and Area 51 over 80 times in the last 40, 45 years. Uh, it's, it's it gets a little bit more difficult because um, I used to have a car that I could drive anywhere and not worry about it. I have a Grand Sport Corvette, and I have about this much clearance you yeah. know, in the front, so it'll, it would tear everything apart. And my tires are too expensive. You hit something, you get you know, puncture a tire. You're right. 150 miles from nowhere. Right. You, you don't want to do something stupid like that. So, sure. So um, I noticed you were in the documentary Secret Space UFOs, The Rise of the TR-3B. It was a Darcy it, it, Weir documentary. Darcy Weir, yeah. 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 And uh, so what... Are you familiar with the TR-3B and its capabilities? Have you experienced anything surrounding that? Uh, no, I've I've seen the TR-3A. It's built by Tel Teledyne Ryan. Uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was only about maybe three and a half, four feet wingspan, and they were flight testing it out, uh, you know, you know, off one of the dry lake beds somewhere in Southern California. The uh, TR-3B, which has been uh, seen all over the planet. If it has FA required red and green lights on it, then it's man-made. Uh, so we don't know when I say we, you know, those of us, you know, in this community, you know, we don't know if, you know, if it's if it's ours, if it's if it's theirs, or if it's another, you know, if it's if it's Russians. I don't think the Russians or the Chinese, they're good at stealing information. But not so much, uh, you know, uh, breaking barriers and, and learning how to do things that we don't know how to do. Right now, do you think? Um, I, I witnessed one personally last March, March second of last year, uh, fly right over my house. Actually, uh, it's completely silent. It did not have the red and green lights on it. Um, do you think? What kind of? I guess. Do you monitor any of the secret programs that the government might be? Um, operating well, behind the scenes, I I try to you know I I have a lot of friends. I've lost a lot of them over the years. I'm uh, I was in the group of people that I hung with that were really into spooky airplanes, the Area Fifty One, and things that go bump in the night. I was the youngest of all of them, and you know on uh, on Monday I hit seventy eight. So a lot of these guys were in their eighties and nineties and have have expired. Uh, John being one of them, he was going to be 80 this year, but he uh, he didn't make it. Um, so I, you know, I I try to keep my ear to the ground. Uh, for four years, when I lived in Hawaii, I didn't do anything. When it was uh, it was too time consuming. <coughs> excuse me, to fly for five and a half six hours just to start my trip. You know, from you know landing in L.A. after six hours. Then I had to, you know, either going off to Minnesota, uh, you know, go, you know, go to Vegas, go wherever. So I just didn't do that. 
So I was more or less yeah, out of communications, uh, so to speak, you know, for those four years that I, you know, I was the associate curator at the Pacific Aviation Museum in Pearl Harbor. And that was my fun job. That was the most fun I've ever had. And I was, I was being the curator. I was, I went around and acquired airplanes all over the place. Uh, I was responsible for the restoration of, uh, of the aircraft we had there at the museum. And I, I quadrupled the amount of aircraft that uh, were on display there. And I'm proud to be part of it. And I was with the Museum of Flight before that. I had 10 years with them. And I'm one of the founding members of the Minnesota Air Guard Museum, where we had our A-12. And it was absconded with. I even made the, the front page of the Wall Street Journal fighting the Air Force Museum uh, taking the, the airplane. Because hmm. it was going to, he said, well, we're taking it because it doesn't have ready access for the general public to see it. So where did they put it? Oh, let's put it at headquarters of CIA, where nobody from the general public will have a chance to see it, not wow. occasionally. So um, I made my my uh, likeness is uh, on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, but under the fold. And then uh, uh, the whole big art, another addition, you know, the remainder of the articles on, uh, you know, I think page nine. But I made the front page of the Wall Street Journal three times. That's and great. I'm, and I'm very, I'm very proud of that. And all had to be re, related to spooky airplanes and there were Area 51. Now, what kind of, um, I guess, top secret black programs do you think that the government has based on your research? Well, I know, I know for a fact, and this is, you know, 30 years ago, that at that time there were 16 black programs that the you know the air force was cons was looking at possibly declassifying of the 16 only four were manned the the other 12 were unmanned so it's uh you know all you know you know funny uh unmanned aerial vehicles for for various purposes but the manned programs he said two of them are experimental and two of them, two of them are operational one of the operational aircraft, and this is from a, a chief master sergeant uh, who was in security at Area 51, off and on for 10 years. He said that he was called in to uh, secure a hangar at Area 51 because something came in at night. Uh, his, his team was you know, ordered to uh, secure the location to make sure no one uh, came out. And it left the following night. And it was a, the guys, you know, the, you know, uh, Mike was his first name. He said, uh, it looked just like the uh, General Dynamics McDonnell Douglas A-12 Avenger II, the flying Dorito. And guys had uh, you know, General Dynamics or, or McDon I think it was McDonnell Douglas overalls on, coveralls. But apparently the, uh, the uh, Navy A-12 never flew. But there was a uh, uh, there was an, an Air Force version of one of their prototypes, and I think it's referred to as the A11. And uh, we don't know what happened with that or where, where it's at. But uh, Mike, the guy from OSI, or not from OSI, from the security, he ended up going to uh, he changed his uh, station. He went to Bowling, Bowling Air Force Base in D.C., uh, working with, uh, you know, working out of the Office of Office and Special Investigation OSI. 
And I've lost track of him because I really wanted to nail him down after he retired so he could really spill his guts. Mm -hmm. But that that didn't happen. But I think I have an opportunity to uh, talk to someone uh, probably later on uh, this spring that spent a lot of time at, at the place that doesn't exist, also known as Area 51. And, well, it's, uh, and I hope to learn more from him. He said he won't talk about UFOs, but he'll talk about anything else that flies out of Area 51. Well, you have to share so, that with us when it comes oh, time. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, going back to the TR-3A that you mentioned you saw test flight, what type of technology was that flying? I mean, was it anti-gravitics? What type of propulsion? Uh that was just, I mean, that was just a, it was a model airplane engine. I mean, it was propeller driven and it was just, okay. you know, it was testing the shape and the maneuverability and whatever. Uh, and uh, again, the, any, any UFO or anything unknown that you see up in the, up in the sky day or night, if it has your FAA required uh Position lights on the wingtips and, and our uh, and or uh, landing lights or whatever, it's more than likely man-made, right? And you know, Lazar said that you know there was there were nine nine different uh, craft at his uh, when he was at S four, and they were all different shapes. They were all different. I mean, every type of configuration limited to nine. That you could think of, uh, they had. He saw on one particular day when all the interconnecting doors were open. Mm, okay. So, um, so we're talking. Again, yeah. Again, uh, be, because of uh, the fact that I didn't do anything for you know for four years, it was uh, it was kind of uh, hard to get you know hard to get back you know back into it. And a lot of a lot of my friends that I had. I was pretty close to had passed away. I mean, there in 2014, I think I uh, I lost someone one every three weeks for the uh, averaged out over the year of 2014 of dying primarily because of old age or or illness, you know, mm. cancer and stuff like that. So, well, we hope you got uh, quite a few years left in you. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I, 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 I have a feeling I'm gonna, I'm gonna live to be at, you know, at least 105. Perfect. Uh, my, my mom's side of the family. Uh, she, my mom was, was 100% Sicilian. I lost her on Mother's Day a long time ago. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm laser focused when it comes to, you know, digging into stuff. I don't take no for an answer. And when someone says no, that's when the sales the sales job begins, <laughs> and that's when the digging starts. You know, begins, and I've you know, I've been really really good into that. So, right. Well, we need people like you that are going to be a thorn in the side for the government. You know, because uh, right. some of the stuff they're doing, you know, maybe it's not even illegal or legal. So, uh, well, I we mean, gotta... security the way security is in uh, in the federal government. Most of security is to hide funds. You know, mm -hmm. the bean counters, the bean counters, the ones that that destroy corporations because they're so narrowly focused on immediately immediate return on investment and such. Uh, you know, they, you know, they're 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 killing they're killing industry, they're killing innovation, and that's what uh, that you know, that's that's the problem we're running into today. And 
when I was doing what I was doing, I had a, uh, there was a group of us, it was about 10 of us, and we referred to ourselves as the Dreamland Interceptors. Uh, probably the most prestigious guy we had in there was uh, Mike, Michael Dornheim. He was the senior writer for Aviation Week. Um, we had a guy named you know, Agent X. You know, he put on a crawl, you know, on a sniper suit. You know, you look like a you know, tumbleweed. And he crawled into Area 51 and got within about 150 yards of the runway. <laughs> wow. Said it, was, it was a four-day trip to go in and come back out. Because they have sensors out there that can, you know, that can sense noises. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of stuff out there. And, and, so he, and, and they he did do, a, and, Sorry, he, he did a slow enough crawl with a disguise as a tumbleweed just well, to no, get... he, he had a he had a sniper's suit on. Okay. So I mean, you look. You, you know, I could go out in the backyard, you know, behind the fence here in the desert, and just curl up into a ball in a sniper suit, and you could be looking for me all day long and walk right by me and never know it. He said he had people walking. He said there was a, a maintenance team or someone doing something with the the runway lights. It's only about 150 feet from him. And he's just laid there. So the hardest part was going to the bathroom. Um, and, you know, of course, he had to bring enough enough water with him. It wasn't so much the food, but he had uh, energy bars and whatever. I said, would you do it again? He said, no. <laughs> my, my nervous system couldn't stand it. Because you're, you know, you're, you're thinking the whole time, what if they find me? I mean, I'm in really deep, you know, deep kimchi if that happens. But they I didn't mean, find him. It's impressive. I, I I would he just tried it just to see how close he could get and make it back. That was yeah. his only now, purpose. Now I wandered in from the from the north fence line. There's a whole series of uh uh hills. It's run off everything else from from, from the uh, the groom range. And I was about three miles in, and I think I probably lost 10 pounds of sweat. It was wintertime. It was 30 degrees out. Uh, the fraud that I was married to before, uh, she was also a good seamstress. And she made, I, I had some of the your survival blankets, you know, the ones that day glow orange, day glow orange on one side, luminized on the other. And she, you know, she sewed on with a quilted pattern, uh, some infrared <laughs> suppressive uh, desert camouflage material and made a poncho out of it. So if I heard, and I, it would have to be really loud because I'm really hard of hearing. Uh, if I heard someone coming, all I had to do was just go, just pull the thing around me and crouch down into a ball. And if they're even if they're scanning with their infrared, I, I wouldn't, I would not show up. Wow, um, that's but great. I, that... But I got in here about about three miles worth, and I, I listen, I'm just sopping wet from sweat. I was so darn nervous, and finally I just turned around. And every time I go over one of these rises. I'd see another one, and I went over three or four of them, and I said, "No, I'll never make it. I'll never, I'll never survive the anxiety associated with it." I mean, it's that's a commitment. Not many people would even dare to try that. So I think it's pretty awesome that you guys even attempted it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the, the uh, to go back to the TR3B, they're being seen all over the world, and they come in various sizes, and it and it could be a. a you know, those that are man-made would be uh, uh, an offshoot or a replication of uh, the bigger TR3Bs because there's, like, there's there's regular-sized ones and there's super-sized ones. You think this is the type of craft that, like, but Bob Lazar was reverse engineering? 
it, that the, the problem, more than likely the propulsion system is the same. You know, one of the things that you know Bob said in the very beginning that the uh, element uh, one fifteen. You know, providing the uh, you know anti gravity capabilities was element one fifteen, and and people started laughing at it. Well, that that doesn't exist anywhere. Well, it, it yes, exist. it does. Mm -hmm. And uh, not many years later, or uh, I guess multiple years later, they they made the announcement. Oh, we have we've created uh, element one fifteen in the lab. It's uh, not very much of it, but we have it. So, you know, the element he was talking about, everything that Bob talked about as you know no one can no one can find fault with what he has to say right there's uh dave fruhoff who was a, a former sr-71 pilot and who was a facility manager at area 51 was looking for ufos said because he said in in late 72 or early 73 he was stationed at kadena okinawa flying SR-71s over Vietnam, North Vietnam, uh, Cambodia, and, and Thailand. And uh, he was on a night mission. Uh, he said he was at 78,000 feet in Mach 2.7, 11 o'clock at night. And he's he's going straight. He's not you know, banking or going anywhere. He's just going in a straight uh, line. Off to his left is a three-quarter moon. Off to his right, about five or six miles off, off to his right, five or six thousand feet above him, he's getting a he's getting glints off of something reflective. It wasn't there were edges to it. It wasn't uh, it wasn't a round uh, or smooth surface. The thing had, you know, had edges. He doesn't know if it was uh, if it was uh, metal metallic or if it was just you know shiny surface uh, reflective. He contacted uh, Kadena on Secure Voice to see if they had another bird up. He said, no, you're up there by yourself. And he said, uh, no, I'm not. I'm going to go take a look. And he advances the throttles. Now, the SR-71 will fly at Mach 2.7 at absolute minimum afterburner. That airplane is more fuel efficient at Mach 3.2 than it is at subsonic. Uh, the airplane and the inlet and the engines... They just want to go fast. And unlike 99% of the aircraft out to the high-performance aircraft, where your top speed is, say, is Mach 1.2 or 1.8, uh, but the operating range is only, what, 60% of your total uh, you know, right. capability. On the Blackbird, it, it flew at about 95, or between 90 and 95% of its maximum performance, both in altitude and speed. So as he's watching this thing, as he's as he's coming up to it, he doesn't want to open up his visor. He's getting you know, reflection inside the cockpit, uh, even though you know uh, the the lights are such that they don't cause any problem going straight. But to look out the window and to look up, he's getting this reflection. He didn't want to open his visor to get a better shot in case all of a sudden he had rapid decompression. He, he would be toast. Um, so he didn't. You know, he he couldn't. Because the stars are up there at eight, you know, eighty-five thousand feet or eighty thousand feet, the stars there's billions of them, and you could you could see where there was where there are no stars where shape was, but he couldn't see that. 
and uh, said when he was still a thousand or so feet below the object and still probably a mile away, this thing took off. It said at about a 30-degree angle, angle of attack, and he lost track of it as it went uh, through between 180 and 200,000 feet. When he retired in, <clears throat> in 78 or 79, he applied for a job with flight systems out of Mojave, which ended up uh, being the the path to his next job, which was facility manager at Area 51. And he was there about a year before he started asking any questions, because even though he knew everybody, uh, when you're working on a compartmental program, whether it's a Blackbird, whether it's a TR-3B or Have Blue or whatever, you don't go around asking questions. He asks questions, you know, the, the uh, flags go up that maybe this guy is a threat to security. And all I had to do is pull your, you know, pull your ticket, you pull your security clearance, and you're screwed. If your entire life is revolved around having a security clearance, and all of a sudden you don't have one, that's a really good incentive to keep your mouth shut. Mm -hmm. So uh, he was there about a year, and after about a year, he started. You know, he he was at the the club one evening, talking to some guys that had been there, you know, for ten or fifteen years already, contractors, civilian types said, do we ever have anything in, you know, flight tested out of this place that could could uh, leave a Blackbird in the, in the dust? And all of them said, nope. And uh, so, you know, and uh, he, you know, later on, he denied ever saying what he said to me. I think he was, you know, he, he was talked to by some of the security people. And it's, yeah, and, and there's, and there's no, there's no, positive aspects to, you know, keeping this stuff quiet. As, you know, as American citizens and taxpayers, if there is a threat, and I don't see UFOs as a threat. They've been coming here since time began. And if they were hostile, if they had ill intentions, we would already know it. We wouldn't be on this conversation right now. We'd, we'd be in the lithium pits you know, up until right. he died, you know, digging, right. digging for, uh, you know, for, you know, rare earths and stuff like that. So, but the, you know, I think we may not be in the position, I'm talking about humans, we may not hold the key to uh, disclosure. It may be them. Uh, you know, there was an Israeli scientist said here within the last year or two that we're not ready to, you know, to to see the aliens, to see the UFOs. We're not ready for it yet. It's coming, and I think it's coming soon. I hope it happens before I pass. You know, I mean, I want, you know, I want to, I want to see them uh, at, a, at an open house flying over. Oh yeah, this is this is our sports model, and this is you know our top hat version. Oh, and this is the TR3C, which right. is which is bigger and faster. Uh, and I hope I hope to live long enough to see that. But, but been... it's it's going to happen. You know, uh, disclosure is going to happen. Mm -hmm. Apparently uh, uh Dr. Greer has uh you know has you know some new stuff. Michael Schrad has been is working for him now. Uh, as an archivist and a, hist and a historian. And, and when it comes to Michael Schratt, nobody knows the subject better than Michael when it comes to 
you know, stuff that's crashed or, you know, primarily, you know, crash retrievals and, and crash sites and, and sightings. And the thing I love about Michael, he doesn't embellish anything. He's like Sergeant Joe Friday and Dragnet. These are the facts and only the facts. Right. And um, I've known Michael for, you know, 25 years now. And he's he's like my kid. Aaron, were you going to say something? Yeah, I was just going to say, um, yeah, I mean, there there's been many whistleblowers over the years and decades that have said different what we would call benevolent et groups have actually tried approaching our government and other governments around the world and said hey if you guys put you know get rid of your nukes stop going stop warring stop killing people uh we'll share our technology with you and help you and and eventually you know disclose ourselves to to the world and everything once there's peace on the planet there has to be peace on the planet they can't they're not gonna like come out while we still have wars and and uh we're still doing all these shenanigans and um basically we we like laughed at them and refused and said haha no you know so then what happens is the negative groups that are like the service to self you know grays and reptilians and whatever go down the list they see oh we can um give them a little bit of technology that they, you know, so basically they gave us this technology for that we use for war and for, for uh, enslaving the population essentially. And for all these negative things. And, um, but then now they have control over us because we, we basically let them essentially. Um, and then right. you have, they, they you have the story of like Dwight Eisenhower who like, you know, a lot of people think he sold us out to the Greys, which, in my understanding, it's not true at all. It was MJ twelve. It, it was all done behind his back, and he found out about it. And he tried he tried to find out what was in Area fifty one, what was going on, and he was denied access. And he was the president, and he was like, what? "Well, no, the, the president." Yeah, you know, to quote uh, Dave in the movie Dave, mm-hmm. he said, uh, te- yeah, "A president is a temporary employee." Right. He's right. there for four years or eight years. And He's a so, middle manager. Right, right, right. And just because he's president doesn't give you the authority to go to Area 51. And that's mm-hmm. pretty That's pretty outrageous. Uh, but that was news to him. <laughs> yeah. Because yes. he demanded, he said, I'm going to take, I'm going to get the first army out of Colorado and invade the base if you don't let me find out what's going on there and have access. And then, so they, to appease him, apparently they took him there, showed him a couple things, but not nowhere near, you know, all the stuff that was going on there. And he found out basically, oh crap, the military industrial complex is kind of like gone rogue. And like, it's become this massive thing that can't be controlled essentially. And he found out kind of how the structure really works and presidents way down the, the food chain and, the whole government essentially is way down the food chain and there's all these secret on unacknowledged programs which Stephen greer goes into in his documentary unacknowledged kind of how that system works and um and they have all this advanced technology essentially that they're they're not sharing with humanity and they're using for their benefit and not the benefit of humanity and meanwhile we're all we're all struggling to survive you know. We human being human beings, we may not be in control of the release of the information. Mm-hmm. They may they may not said, "Hey, you're not ready yet. You still have to do this or that." Uh, and I think that's what's holding things up. 
you know, mm-hmm. there was there was a a thought going around for a long, long time, and it and it's and I think it's still a valid I you know idea that for for aliens to you know to come out and say, okay, we're having a coming out party, we're here, we've been here forever. Uh, I think the religious glue that holds most of civilization together is based on a belief of a supreme being, God, Buddha, Muhammad, the local 7-Eleven store down in the corner that uh, has an image of the Virgin Mary up in, her, up in the sign because you know, the thing melted or whatever, but they're not going to take it down. It's those people that could not deal with the fact that maybe Jesus was an alien. Right, mm-hmm. right. Maybe Moses was an alien. I swear my daughter is. She doesn't think like any anybody I know. Right. Um, and there's, there's more there's life all over the universe. It's not just absolutely. A, now I was just... I was a docent at Kitt Peak National Observatories outside of Tucson. They're about 50 miles due west. Uh, they're at a, a, a seven thousand foot mountain it's called Kitt Peak. They have 22 optical telescopes and two radio telescopes up there. The optical telescopes go from uh, about a 12-inch to a 4-meter or 13-foot primary mirror. That's the male telescope. And the 12-meter and a 25-meter radio telescope. The 25-meter is hooked uh, into one in Australia, Hawaii, uh, uh, Tucson, West Virginia. And what it does is, uh, and those things are linked together. And this is over and above what they have at Socorro. And it acts as a 10,000-mile-wide radio telescope antenna. So they're, they're bringing in a lot of data. But the 2.1-meter antenna, antenna uh, telescope was used by, by uh, Caltech for five years. They're doing remote operation and using adaptive optics. They had a anytime they were going to be viewing, their job was to look for exoplanets, planets that exist outside of our solar system. Mm-hmm. And over the course of five years, using that 2.1 meter telescope, now because of the adaptive optics and, and how they adjust it, they shoot up a UV laser up in the sky. You and I can't see it because it's UV, but the sensors can. And at 18 miles, it has to be a specific diameter. I mean, down to the uh, nano, you know, you know, nano, nano inch or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> and what that does is the sensor looks up and it, and, it, and if there's any turbulence, this, you know, these, these uh, diameter is going to change. Not enough for you and I to see it, even if it was visible, but it, it does change. So 1,200 times a second, this deformable mirror uh, changes its shape, and it has the same resolution pretty much as the as the uh, Hubble Space Telescope. It's really, really good. And over the course of the five years, Caltech cataloged 8,000 exoplanets outside of our uh, outside of our solar system in a very almost a postage stamp size part of our milky way 8000 planets in one little area one little area right yeah 
And just before I just before I quit volunteering, I had uh, ended up getting knee replacement. I'm doing a lot of walking up and down, and and I didn't I didn't care for the the new volunteer coordinator, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, just before I left, we had a, a, a beer and pizza night at the NOAO, the National Optical Astronomy Observatory headquarters at the University of Arizona. And the keynote speaker was uh, one of the head astronomers from the National Science Foundation. And he had just returned from a worldwide conference on exoplanets. And he said, based on all the information coming from all the different observatories, and based on proven mathematical formulas, they calculate for every star in the universe, there's one and a half planets. And out of that incredible number of planets, they calculate that there are 2 billion, that's, that's with a B, 2 billion Earth-like planets orbiting a similar-sized brown dwarf star as our sun in the inhabitable zone with liquid water. To quote, Jody Foster, to quote Jody Foster's character in the movie Contact, Carl Sagan's you know, mm-hmm. move, you know, movie, if we're the only ones, what a waste of space. It's an incredible waste of space. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And we're not. We're not. I mean, it'd be arrogant to think, for us to think, oh, we're the only ones. We're an insignificant solar system in an insignificant corner of our galaxy that's in an inf- insignificant corner of the universe. I mean, we're like the bastard redheaded stepchild that no one wants to talk to because we're you know we're pushed so far out and in, into infinity, and 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 we're the only ones. Yeah, I, right. I don't swallow. I don't swallow that. But there right. are people who do. But one one of the biggest fears is if all of a sudden it is you know the religious fanatics and the religious beliefs. If all of a sudden it's you know it's speculated and, and with uh, you know with the arrival of uh, the aliens that maybe Jesus was an alien maybe Mohammed was an alien maybe you know Adam Smith from uh, in the Mormon side was an alien maybe Buddha was an alien maybe right. it talks about and, and to remove that religious glue that holds civilizations together Maybe they're con- they're concerned with the with the fact that well, if there's no God, that means there's no hell. That means if I shoot my neighbor because he's a loudmouth or he looks at my wife the wrong way, I'm not going to go to hell. I may have to go to prison, but I killed that sob, and he's not going to cause any more problems. I think the f- the fabric of a civilized society has the potential from coming unglued. And I think believe that is, you know, because you know, the Israeli scientists have said humans are not ready for what they're about to see. Well, I think people are coming unglued right now. I mean, there is a lot. I mean, we talk about different subjects every week, but uh, the common the consensus is like, yeah, ETs exist. We know it. And, you know, we're getting into different races, different species, um, how they're working with our government. You know, you can't ignore it. Like, we can't have an ARV, an alien reproduction vehicle, without the aliens. You can't reverse engineer alien technology without the aliens. And I mean, so you can't pick and choose what you want to believe in. And all the UFO wrecks, not all of them, but most of them talk about 
um, dead bodies or living bodies that were recovered and brought to said location. John Lear talked about this in his report that I actually have sitting right here. The uh-huh. John Le- the John Lear report has more disclosure in yeah. this report from 1987 than anything we've gotten in the last 50, 60 years. Yeah. And uh, he talks about the, the the recovered alien bodies from Roswell and some other wrecks and, and all the the projects that the CIA and NSA and, and Project Blue Book and the government, you know, all of those uh, agencies developed over the years. You can't ignore any of that. You can't, you have to just choose not to believe that or choose to believe in what you believe in. But I don't, you know, truth doesn't care what you, how you feel. The truth is also, part, yeah. also part of the problem is like, we're in a, we're in a system, we're in a society that doesn't, teach us these things from day one growing up we're actually taught aliens aren't real we're the only life uh that's all ridiculous uh you know it's ridiculed blah 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 so we're programmed as a kid from day one like what if we were what if they started teaching kid like teaching us this stuff then it wouldn't be you know such a wouldn't be an issue (laughs) right right so they got to understand like there it the system conditions and programs us to not be ready that's a big part of it like we have to take responses obviously like you know there's religious zealots and fanatics and stuff i used to be one so i get the mindset i'm not anymore i mean i used to be very christian and i you know i used to think oh any aliens or demons because that's what i was told that's what you're taught you know but like if i would have been taught in school at least that you know i would have maybe looked into it but you're taught to never look into it because it's ridiculous because there's there's no evidence there's life, you know, other than humans and blah, blah, right. blah. And when just, in fact, there's mountains and mountains of that. There's tons of it. It's overwhelming amounts yeah, of it. It's just all covered just, up and hidden. You know, it's, it's like someone getting a glass of water and said, right. Okay. Uh, there's no I, sharks I, in this. I, I, there's no sharks or whales <laughs> yeah. in here, so they don't exist. They don't um, exist. Right. Right. Exactly. It's, it's, and, it's asinine. You know, and then you have people, you know, well, if it's true, why wasn't I taught this in school? My teacher said it wasn't true. You know, why so, isn't it on the news? Why why right. don't the why doesn't the government say talk about it when there it's, there's actually been whistleblowers from governments that have talked about well, it? I mean, one one of the things that's happened, you know, they've they've uh uh signed letting their legislation has been created to protect whistleblowers. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there's there's some stuff coming out, and I, I think there's I think this year we're going to see some uh, you know some things blow up, and you know I think be be more disclosure than we've had for the last eight hundred years. Right. Uh, Even if it's right. the limited hangout disclosure, the soft disclosure, their narrative, it's still something. We're still making some headway. They're not going to tell us everything, but they have to start telling us something. And they already are. Look at the mainstream media now. They're taking UFOs seriously. There's whole segments on it. They're interviewing people. Um, Obviously, it's, you know, they're not going to share everything, like I said, but it's a step forward. At least now, I think uh, in the coming years, it's not going to be laughed at anymore. When I when I was on state staff with the Minnesota Air Guard, my boss was Major General Wayne Gatlin, and, and General Gatlin was just an, an incredible photographer. There's you know, anything you see of a, a Duluth uh, Air Guard airplane in the air, and it's beautifully uh, positioned, the back you know the background, everything, everything is everything is right on the spot. More than likely, it's a Wayne Gatlin shot. 
So I was having uh, I was having a cup of coffee with uh, General Gatlin, and I said I said uh, General Gatlin, so I got a question. Let's assume for a minute I'm a I'm an uh, I'm an officer and I'm a pilot. I'm flying F fours out of Duluth, and I encounter and chase a UFO. Nobody else. I was up there by myself. No one else I was with saw the you know, UFO. What do I do? How do I report it? He said, well, when you get, you know, when you're finished your training flight or whatever the flight was, and you, and you land, uh, you go through your debrief on how the airplane flew. And it was, you know, did, you know, were these parameters met, whatever. Then you go to the O Club, get two or three real stiff drinks, slam them down, go to your billeting and forget what you saw. Because in 1955, which was the time frame that uh, General uh, Gatlin was pulling his firsthand information from, said, first of all, no one's going to believe you. And second of all, it's going to be in your 201 file, which means you're a crackpot and you've just you've just destroyed your path to promotion. So he said, you, 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 you ignore it. Said at one time we had Operation Blue Book. Uh, it, but it was still it would it would tarnish your reputation, and you'd be look, viewed as a crackpot. Right. He it's said, all so fear you, tactics, fear based. Yeah. So, so you yeah. just you just you forget what you see as that. Right. Yeah. You just forget what you saw and go from there. So the, and General Gatlin said he chased a UFO over Lake Superior. He got now they were on alert at Duluth Air Force Base. The uh, they were flying F ninety four Cs, shooting stars. Again, you know, Lockheed. Oh, even a Skunk Works airplane, you know, from its very beginnings, the P eighty. And they were alerted to a high speed object flying over Lake Superior. Now, Lake Superior is one of the largest bodies of you know fresh water. It's one of the largest bodies of fresh water in the world. It's thirteen hundred feet deep, and it's at the the longest distance between shorelines is almost a thousand miles, nine hundred and forty some odd miles. You don't fly over Lake Superior uh, on military, commercial, or private aircraft because Lake Superior creates its own wet weather, and you could take off on a bright sunny day. There's nothing out there, and all of a sudden you can get a, a thunderstorm that uh, was right out of hell, and you know, with downdrafts and lightning strikes and whatever. You don't want it, you don't want that to happen. So they're very they're they're very cautious when they do go out over the central part of Lake Superior. But they went out there as fast as they could, uh, and they're being controlled by Finley Air Force Station, which is on the north shore of uh, Lake Superior, uh, just up you know, maybe forty or fifty miles north of Duluth. And they're uh, they're uh, they're being vectored into uh, you know tracking down this object. And it, and the guys at Finley said, well, it's heading towards us. And General Gatlin said, "I could he could see it. It was just a ball. It was an orb, which has been seen all over the place late recently." So he went in. He went into afterburner, and the F ninety four C. You can only be in afterburner about ninety seconds before you run out of fuel. So he's going as fast as he can, and every time his weapons systems operator would lock on with his radar, weapons radar, the weapons radar would die. It would and they'd reset the circuit breakers, try it again. As soon as they locked on, the thing would die. As this thing's heading towards Finley, Finley says, it just went right over us. 
but we don't have it. It's, you know, it's nowhere, nowhere, nowhere to be found. And General Gatlin says, you're getting close enough where you can see the shore. He said, well, the reason why you don't have it on radar, it's directly above you. And the you know, guys ran out of the you know, geodesic dome. They went running out to see what was there. And this thing went straight up. Visibility unlimited. And General Gatlin said he just kept going till it was out of sight. And, wow. and uh, he said, you don't, yeah, you don't, you don't tell anybody. You don't. Uh, now, he had a report. There was an unknown. I don't he never told him that it was a UFO, but it was an unknown object. And it was large enough uh, and reflective enough to uh, be you know, tracked on uh, radar. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, that is another perfect example. I mean, and it's interesting. I wonder, you know, that was years ago. I wonder what the protocol is now, if they still report the same way. Now, the protocol is now they, you know, they, they do have an avenue, you know, and, that, and that's that's within the last three years, maybe four years that it's been okay to report ufo activities mm. uh, before that uh you'd go to your public affairs officer and said okay and fill out a report and that would go right into your 201 file which means if you thought you were going to make lieutenant colonel on this cycle you're not <laughs> it's never going to happen right because of what you just said right so it, it's you know you're you're you're, yeah. fight, you're fighting two you're fighting two enemies you're you know you're fighting the fact that this thing doesn't want to be seen very often especially by the general public and yeah. you're hamstrung by the ability that if you say something uh you're going to be hamstrung you're going to you're going to you're going to ruin your career mm -hmm. and yeah, the, the secrecy is very ingrained in the in the system of this stuff and it's very enforced and, yeah. and enforced mainly psychologically, like what you just said, like you'll ruin your reputation's gone. You'll never be able to get a promotion. You'll never be able to advance in your career. You might lose your career. So the silence is kept mainly by that, by people that just don't want to say anything because that would ruin their life or their career or their reputation. Right. Um, rather than even just, you know, and, and then they figure oh, a lot of people aren't going to believe me anyway if i try to say i saw all these ufos and are all these things i mean you're going to be ridiculed you're going to be ridiculed right you're, right. you're a crackpot hmm. and no one's going to take you seriously from that point forward but the right? more people well, that speak out the ironically the more people that start speaking out and talking then people start saying wait a second and that's what we see happening now it's actually the government that's the crackpot and not it's, the guys the tables are turning <laughs> right oh, right, right right and uh, i gotta take a potty break so. well actually actually we're gonna go ahead and wrap this up anyway um oh, okay was that everything so, you wanted uh, yeah you, yeah you needed think, or wanted? yeah yeah so um if uh, could you please thank you for joining us for one. Thank you. That My was pleasure. Amazing. And could you please let people know how they can find your books, where they can find your books and uh, how they can follow you? Uh, I'm only on Facebook. Everybody said, well, how come you're not on Twitter and a bunch of other stuff? And I said, <coughs> I, I piss off enough people on Facebook. I don't need another <laughs> platform to piss any more off. Um, Right. But I'm on I'm on Facebook. But if if you want my books, I have 29 books uh, I've written. Uh, wow. 27 of them are in print or have been in print. Two of them I just my 29th book is at the publisher right now, and my 27th book I'm waiting to get on a, an Ohio class SSGN. I have the, the ballistic missile ones covered, but I need the arsenal boat 
uh, interiors and the differences between an SSBN, which is your ballistic missile submarine, and SSGN, which is your arsenal boat. Uh, they they modified uh, four of the early the, the first four Ohio boats and uh, modified them into be arsenal boats. They carry uh, 154 Tomahawk cruise missiles, plus they have uh, two dry deck shelters on on them, and they're they're just they're a nasty war machine. And and I'm just I'm just waiting to get on. And they uh, there used to be an organization called. Uh, uh, you know, you know, nav something east, uh, and it's uh, it is the public affairs office out of uh, New York City that dealt with uh, the print media. Well, just as of the the beginning of this new fiscal year, uh, they've eliminated that position. So uh, I'm off to other other places to try to get on. Uh, my, I get on a uh, a arsenal boat to to cover it. And they nice. can't say, well, this, they can't say this is sensitive. I said I was on a ballistic missile submarine with hydrogen bombs, and I shot everything. And you now have a a, a sub with tactical, conventional uh, warheads on it. You know, you can't give me this crap that it's well, it's classified. No, it's not. You're just trying to protect your your little kingdom or your little feistum, feistum or whatever. But right. my my books are if you go into Amazon, and up at the top, right, books by James C. Goodall, G O O D A L L, just like it sounds, or Jim Goodall, and I've used both names. Uh, but James C. Goodall, you'll find all my hardbound books, which is you know, my books on the uh, Blackbird on the B two. Uh, my 75 years of Lockheed Skunk Works, and uh, and I have my submarine books, and it shows all you know most of my other books. But I have 29 books with my name on the front cover. Very proud of it. I hated term papers in school, and what happens? I ended up being a published author, and that just <laughs> that just blows me away. Well, whenever so, it interests you, it's different. Yeah, uh, you know, 29 it's not books, mine. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us today. You're a wealth of knowledge. I love your stories. Um, you know, we're not going to get these stories about Bob Lazar and John Lear and Ben Rich from anyone else. Uh, and it's good to just like Native American lore and legend and knowledge, you know, if we don't, if they stop telling those stories, the knowledge dies. So it, it dies. Yeah. Right. right. So it's great that you're sharing these stories and we're getting the inside scoop and we're learning, you know, what really happened behind the scenes in certain scenarios. So thank you for doing that. Thank you for joining us. We really appreciate uh, your time. It's my pleasure. Uh, I'll do it anytime. Uh, I'm retired, so I have a lot of free time. Uh, the wife is really good about uh, let me hang out in front of my computer and say, well, you're on there way too much. I said, it's either that or I'll hang out in a bar. <laughs> <laughs> this way, you know exactly where I'm at. And more than likely, I'm either talking with someone about UFOs or I'm doing something about airplanes ships or submarines so it's uh right that's, right. What I that's awesome yeah, yeah. Right. well thank you so much and uh thank you guys for tuning in we love you all don't forget day passes are available for the conference come hang out with us we would love to see you there and uh, you can get those at journey to journey to truthcon.com have a great evening everyone we love you and good night you take care and thanks for the invite
There was a CIA director named William Colby, who in the 1980s said, we'll know our disinformation campaigns are successful when everything the American people believe is fake. When we realize how powerful we are when we set our intentions and we realize that we aren't just this, we are just these multi-dimensional light beings and time is an illusion and you know, it's everything's a perception then you can go forward and backwards and, and embody it and just pop out and go and do this work. You can do amazing things when we set the right intentions to do it. And I said, this is this is us on this plane. You know, like this, that's what this is, we're going to the moon. And he said, this thing is a lot older than you think it is. And we've been going to the moon a long time. But I wrote on it, I knew that we went to the moon. And so I always knew there was a base on the moon from a young age. And our DNA is a complex, recording system of the history of the entire universe, the history you know, of, of everything, that not just this timeline that we know, but multiple timelines of reality. There are a total of nine different categories of planets uh, in the universe. Uh, we people on Earth, we are living on a category one planet, like elementary school students. And the Theobans, they are living on a category nine planet, like uh, college professors. So they have been really guiding us throughout history. Teokum let us know that this facility under the Sandia Mountain is considered an information station for interstellar travelers coming to the planet. They tell us that their facility was retrofitted into the ancient tunnel system that already existed. And as far as the bending the space-time continuum, I've had something like that happen. And what seemed like about a five minute encounter has been four and a half hours of missing time. And I was completely conscious. And when you're dealing with a type three, type four, type five civilizations that can work with the different coexisting timelines, all bets are off, man. <laughs> you know, every time we have Bigfoot activity out there, we're having ETs and orbs and stuff like that. We have a lot of the stuff documented. As a matter of fact, um, I'm a member of three different teams and I work with people from all over the country out in the field. And um, we actually have documented a portal, something that we consider to be a portal um, opening. And we sent two of our team members inside of it. And really? It disappeared and then came back out. I would suggest that we take it one step further and say humanity has never known who we are. We've always been in the thought control matrix. And one step further, perhaps we could say that we're in a conscious, consciously controlled state of hypnosis. In other words, are the thought control matrix creators constantly bombarding us with frequencies that keep us from being telepathic, that keep us from remembering who we are? The thought control matrix was set up and we have never known our potential, our power, our yeah. beauty, our, our, our incredible connection. It makes no sense at all. There is no reason for it other than the programming that we've received for generations because it's all about order. It's all about listen to listen to your elders, listen to the teachers, listen to the adults, listen, listen, listen. And what that does is it, it, it dims the light of the child and it makes them feel like they don't have a voice. And why that's designed that way by the dark side and that's in the system is so that they grow up and they just listen to and they do what they're told and they're good little boys and good little girls and they lose their sense of self. They lose their north, their true north. Yeah. So many adults are walking around in, the, in this world. They don't know who they are. So the planet itself 
is now beginning to split. It's beginning to divide again into a higher vibrational earth and a lower vibrational earth. And the race of man is dividing with it. And we're becoming less and less aware of one another. And over time, what will happen, and I don't know how long this will be, one world will have all higher vibrational beings on it, and the other one will all be third dimensional beings, and we will not perceive each other anymore.